Chapters one and two of France and England in North America, Part five, Count Frontenac, New France, Louis the Fourteenth by Francis Parkman, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter one, sixteen twenty to sixteen seventy two, Count and Countess Frontenac. At Versailles, there is the portrait of a lady, beautiful and young. She is painted as Minerva, a plumed helmet on her head and a shield on her arm in a corner of the canvas is written anne de la grange trianon comtesse de frontenac this blooming goddess was the wife of the future governor of canada madame de frontenac at the age of about twenty was a favourite companion of mademoiselle de montpensier the granddaughter of henry the fourth and daughter of the weak and dastardly gaston duke of orleans nothing in french annals has found more readers than the story of the exploit of this spirited princess at orleans during the civil war of the fronde her cousin conde chief of the revolt had found favour in her eyes and she had espoused his cause against her cousin the king the royal army threatened orleans the duke her father dared not leave paris but he consented that his daughter should go in his place to hold the city for conde and the fronde the princess entered her carriage and set out on her errand attended by a small escort with her were three young married ladies the marquise de Bréauté, the comtesse de fiesque and the comtesse de frontenac in two days they reached orleans the civic authorities were afraid to declare against the king and hesitated to open the gates to the daughter of their duke who standing in the moat with her three companions tried persuasion and threats in vain the prospect was not encouraging when a crowd of boatmen came up from the river and offered the princess their services i accepted them gladly she writes and said a thousand fine things such as one must say to that sort of people to make them do what one wishes she gave them money as well as fair words and begged them to burst open one of the gates they fell at once to the work while the guards and officials looked down from the walls neither aiding nor resisting them to animate the boatman by my presence she continues i mounted a hillock near by i did not look to see which way i went but clambered up like a cat clutching brambles and thorns and jumping over hedges without hurting myself madame de Brioté, who is the most cowardly creature in the world began to cry out against me and everybody who followed me in fact i do not know if she did not swear in her excitement which amused me very much at length a hole was knocked in the gate and a gentleman of her train who had directed the attack beckoned her to come on as it was very muddy a man took me and carried me forward and thrust me in at this hole where my head was no sooner through than the drums beat to salute me i gave my hand to the captain of the guard the shouts redoubled two men took me and put me in a wooden chair i do not know whether i was seated in it or on their arms for i was beside myself with joy everybody was kissing my hands and i almost died with laughing to see myself in such an odd position there was no resisting the enthusiasm of the people and the soldiers orleans was one for the fronde the young countesses of frontenac and fiesque had constantly followed her and climbed after her through the hole in the gate her father wrote to compliment them on their prowess and addressed his letter à mesdames les comtesses Maréchal de Caen dans l'armée de ma fille contre le Mazarin. Officers and soldiers took part in the pleasantry, and as Madame de Frontenac passed on horseback before the troops, they saluted her with the honors paid to a brigadier. 
when the king or cardinal mazarin who controlled him had triumphed over the revolting princes mademoiselle de montpensier paid the penalty of her exploit by a temporary banishment from the court she roamed from place to place with a little court of her own of which madame de frontenac was a conspicuous member during the war count frontenac had been dangerously ill of a fever in paris and his wife had been absent for a time attending him she soon rejoined the princess who was at her chateau of st fargeau three days journey from paris when an incident occurred which placed the married life of her fair companion in an unexpected light the duchesse de sully came to see me and brought with her m d'herbeau and m de frontenac frontenac had stopped here once before but it was only for a week when he still had the fever and took great care of himself like a man who had been at the door of death this time he was in high health his arrival had not been expected and his wife was so much surprised that everybody observed it especially as the surprise seemed to be not at all a pleasant one instead of going to talk with her husband she went off and hid herself crying and screaming because he had said that he would like to have her company that evening i was very much astonished especially as i had never before perceived her aversion to him the elder comtesse de fiesque remonstrated with her but she only cried the more madame de fiesque then brought books to show her her duty as a wife but it did no good and at last she got into such a state that we sent for the cure with holy water to exercise her count frontenac came of an ancient and noble race said to have been of basque origin his father held a high post in the household of louis the thirteenth who became the child's godfather and gave him his own name at the age of fifteen the young louis showed an incontrollable passion for the life of a soldier he was sent to the seat of war in holland to serve under the prince of orange at the age of nineteen he was a volunteer at the siege of Edin. in the next year he was at arras where he distinguished himself during a sortie of the garrison in the next he took part in the siege of air and in the next in those of cayour and perpignan at the age of twenty-three he was made colonel of the regiment of normandy which he commanded in repeated battles and sieges of the italian campaign he was several times wounded and in sixteen forty six he had an arm broken at the siege of orbitello in the same year when twenty-six years old he was raised to the rank of marechal de camp equivalent to that of brigadier-general a year or two later we find him at paris at the house of his father on the quai des celestins in the same neighbourhood lived lagrange trianon sieur de neville a widower of fifty with one child a daughter of sixteen whom he had placed in the charge of his relative madame de boutier frontenac fell in love with her madame de boutier opposed the match and told lagrange that he might do better for his daughter than to marry her to a man who say what he might had but twenty thousand francs a year lagrange was weak and vacillating sometimes he listened to his prudent kinswoman and sometimes to the eager suitor treated him as a son-in-law carried love messages from him to his daughter and ended by refusing him her hand and ordering her to renounce him on pain of being immured in a convent neither frontenac nor his mistress was of a pliant temper in the neighbourhood was the little church of st pierre au boeuf which had the privilege of uniting couples without the consent of their parents and here on a wednesday in october sixteen forty eight the lovers were married in presence of a number of frontenac's relatives lagrange was furious at the discovery but his anger soon cooled and complete reconciliation followed the happiness of the newly wedded pair was short love soon changed to aversion at least on the part of the bride she was not of a tender nature 
her temper was imperious and she had a restless craving for excitement frontenac on his part was the most wayward and headstrong of men she bore him a son but maternal cares were not to her liking the infant francois louis was placed in the keeping of a nurse at the village of clion and his young mother left her husband to follow the fortunes of mademoiselle de montpensier who for a time pronounced her charming praised her wit and beauty and made her one of her ladies of honour very curious and amusing are some of the incidents recounted by the princess in which madame de frontenac bore part but what is more to our purpose are the sketches traced here and there by the same sharp pen in which one may discern the traits of the destined saviour of new france thus in the following we see him at st fargeau in the same attitude in which we shall often see him at quebec the princess and the duke her father had a dispute touching her property frontenac had lately been at blois where the duke had possessed him with his own views of the questions at issue accordingly on arriving at st fargeau he seemed disposed to assume the character of mediator he wanted says the princess to discuss my affairs with me i listened to his preaching and he also spoke about these matters to prefontaine her man of business i returned to the house after our promenade and we went to dance in the great hall while we were dancing i saw prefontaine walking at the farther end with frontenac who was talking and gesticulating this continued for a long time madame de sully noticed it also and seemed disturbed by it as i was myself i said have we not danced enough madame de sully assented and we went out i called prefontaine and asked him what was frontenac saying to you he answered he was scolding me i never saw such an impertinent man in my life i went to my room and madame de sully and madame de fiesque followed madame de sully said to prefontaine i was very much disturbed to see you talking with so much warmth to monsieur de frontenac for he came here in such ill-humour that i was afraid he would quarrel with you yesterday when we were in the carriage he was ready to eat us the comtesse de fiesque said this morning he came to see my mother-in-law and scolded at her prefontaine answered he wanted to throttle me i never saw a man so crazy and absurd we all four began to pity poor madame de frontenac for having such a husband and to think her right in not wanting to go with him frontenac owned the estate of ile savary on the indre not far from blois and here soon after the above scene the princess made him a visit it is a pretty enough place she says for a man like him the house is well furnished and he gave me excellent entertainment he showed me all the plans he had for improving it and making gardens fountains and ponds it would need the riches of a superintendent of finance to execute his schemes and how anybody else should venture to think of them i cannot comprehend while frontenac was at st vargeau she continues he kept open table and many of my people went to dine with him for he affected to hold court and acted as if everybody owed duty to him the conversation was always about my affair with his royal highness her father whose conduct towards me was always praised while mine was blamed frontenac spoke ill of prefontaine and in fine said everything he could to displease me and stir up my own people against me he praised everything that belonged to himself and never came to sup or dine with me without speaking of some ragout or some new sweetmeat which had been served up on his table ascribing it all to the excellence of the officers of his kitchen the very meat that he ate according to him had a different taste on his board than on any other as for his silver plate it was always of good workmanship 
and his dress was always of patterns invented by himself when he had new clothes he paraded them like a child one day he brought me some to look at and left them on my dressing-table we were then at chambord his royal highness came into the room and must have thought it odd to see breeches and doublets in such a place prefontaine and i laughed about it a great deal Rontenac took everybody who came to st fargeau to see his stables and all who wished to gain his good graces were obliged to admire his horses which were very indifferent in short this is his way in everything though not himself of the highest rank his position at court was from the courtier point of view an enviable one the princess after her banishment had ended more than once mentions incidentally that she had met him in the cabinet of the queen her dislike of him became intense and her fondness for his wife changed at last to aversion she charges the countess with ingratitude she discovered or thought that she discovered that in her dispute with her father and in certain dissensions in her own household madame de frontenac had acted secretly in opposition to her interests and wishes the imprudent lady of honour received permission to leave her service it was a woeful scene she saw me get into my carriage writes the princess and her distress was greater than ever her tears flowed abundantly as for me my fortitude was perfect and i looked on with composure while she cried if anything could disturb my tranquillity it was the recollection of the time when she laughed while i was crying mademoiselle de montpensier had been deeply offended and apparently with reason the countess and her husband received an order never again to appear in her presence but soon after when the princess was with the king and queen at a comedy in the garden of the louvre frontenac who had previously arrived immediately changed his position and with his usual audacity took a post so conspicuous that she could not help seeing him i confess she says i was so angry that i could find no pleasure in the play but i said nothing to the king and queen fearing that they would not take such a view of the matter as i wished with the close of her relations with la grande mademoiselle madame de frontenac is lost to sight for a while in sixteen sixty nine a venetian embassy came to france to beg for aid against the turks who for more than two years had attacked candia in overwhelming force the ambassadors offered to place their own troops under french command and they asked turenne to name a general officer equal to the task frontenac had the signal honour of being chosen by the first soldier of europe for this most arduous and difficult position he went accordingly the result increased his reputation for ability and courage but candia was doomed and its chief fortress fell into the hands of the infidels after a protracted struggle which is said to have cost them a hundred and eighty thousand men three years later frontenac received the appointment of governor and lieutenant-general for the king in all new france he was says saint-simon a man of excellent parts living much in society and completely ruined he found it hard to bear the imperious temper of his wife and he was given the government of canada to deliver him from her and afford him some means of living certain scandalous songs of the day assign a different motive for his appointment louis the fourteenth was enamoured of madame de montespan she had once smiled upon frontenac and it is said that the jealous king gladly embraced the opportunity of removing from his presence and from hers a lover who had forestalled him frontenac's wife had no thought of following him across the sea a more congenial life awaited her at home she had long had a friend of a humbler station than herself mademoiselle d'outrelaise daughter of an obscure gentleman of poitou 
an amiable and accomplished person who became through life her constant companion the extensive building called the arsenal formerly the residence of sully the minister of henry the fourth contained suites of apartments which were granted to persons who had influence enough to obtain them the duc de lude grand master of artillery had them at his disposal and gave one of them to madame de frontenac here she made her abode with her friend and here at last she died at the age of seventy-five the analyst saint-simon who knew the court and all belonging to it better than any other man of his time says of her she had been beautiful and gay and was always in the best society where she was greatly in request like her husband she had little property and abundant wit she and mademoiselle d'outrelaise whom she took to live with her gave the tone to the best company of paris and the court though they never went thither they were called les divines in fact they demanded incense like goddesses and it was lavished upon them all their lives mademoiselle d'outrelaise died long before the countess who retained in old age the rare social gifts which to the last made her apartments a resort of the highest society of that brilliant epoch it was in her power to be very useful to her absent husband who often needed her support and who seems to have often received it she was childless her son francois louis was killed some say in battle and others in a duel at an early age her husband died nine years before her and the old countess left what little she had to her friend berinjean the king's master of the horse chapter two sixteen seventy two to sixteen seventy five frontenac at quebec frontenac was fifty-two years old when he landed at quebec if time had done little to cure his many faults it had done nothing to weaken the springs of his unconquerable vitality in his ripe middle age he was as keen fiery and perversely headstrong as when he quarrelled with prefontaine in the hall at st fargeau had nature disposed him to melancholy there was much in his position to awaken it a man of courts and camps born and bred in the focus of a most gorgeous civilization he was banished to the ends of the earth among savage hordes and half-reclaimed forests to exchange the splendours of st germain and the dawning glories of versailles for a stern grey rock haunted by sombre priests rugged merchants and traders blanketed indians and wild bush-rangers but fontenac was a man of action he wasted no time in vain regrets and set himself to his work with the elastic vigour of youth his first impressions had been very favourable when he had sailed up the st lawrence the basin of quebec opened before him his imagination kindled with the grandeur of the scene i never he wrote saw anything more superb than the position of this town it could not be better situated as the future capital of a great empire that quebec was to become the capital of a great empire there seemed in truth good reason to believe the young king and his minister colbert had laboured in earnest to build up a new france in the west for years past shiploads of immigrants had landed every summer on the strand beneath the rock all was life and action and the air was full of promise the royal agent talon had written to his master this part of the french monarchy is destined to a grand future all that i see around me points to it and the colonies of foreign nations so long settled on the seaboard are trembling with fright in view of what his majesty has accomplished here within the last seven years the measures we have taken to confine them with narrow limits and the prior claim we have established against them by formal acts of possession do not permit them to extend themselves except at peril of having war declared against them as usurpers 
and this, in fact, is what they seem greatly to fear. Frontenac shared the spirit of the hour. His first step was to survey his government. He talked with traders, colonists, and officials, visited seigneuries, farms, fishing stations, and all the infant industries that Talon had galvanized into life, examined the new ship on the stocks, admired the structure of the new brewery, went to three rivers to see the iron mines and then having acquired a tolerably exact idea of his charge returned to quebec he was well pleased with what he saw but not with the ways and means of canadian travel for he thought it was strangely unbecoming that a lieutenant-general of the king should be forced to crouch on a sheet of bark at the bottom of a birch canoe scarcely daring to move his head to the right or left lest he should disturb the balance of the fragile vessel at quebec he convoked the council made them a speech and administered the oath of allegiance this did not satisfy him he resolved that all quebec should take the oath together it was little but a pretext like many of his station frontenac was not in full sympathy with the centralizing movement of the time which tended to level ancient rights privileges and prescriptions under the ponderous roller of the monarchical administration he looked back with regret to the day when the three orders of the state clergy nobles and commons had a place and a power in the direction of national affairs the three orders still subsisted in form if not in substance in some of the provinces of france and frontenac conceived the idea of reproducing them in canada not only did he cherish the tradition of faded liberties but he loved pomp and circumstance above all when he was himself the central figure in it and the thought of a royal governor of languedoc or brittany presiding over the estates of his province appears to have fired him with emulation he had no difficulty in forming his order of the clergy the jesuits and the seminary priests supplied material even more abundant than he wished for the order of the nobles he found three or four gentilhommes at quebec and these he reinforced with a number of officers the third estate consisted of the merchants and citizens and he formed the members of the council and the magistrates into another distinct body though properly speaking they belonged to the third estate of which by nature and prescription they were the head the jesuits glad no doubt to lay him under some slight obligation lent him their church for the ceremony that he meditated and aided in decorating it for the occasion here on the twenty third of october sixteen seventy two the three estates of canada were convoked with as much pomp and splendour as circumstances would permit then frontenac with the ease of a man of the world and the loftiness of a grand seigneur delivered himself of the harangue he had prepared he wrote it exceedingly well he is said also to have excelled as an orator certainly he was never averse to the tones of his own eloquence his speech was addressed to a double audience the throng that filled the church and the king and the minister three thousand miles away he told his hearers that he had called the assembly not because he doubted their loyalty but in order to afford them the delight of making public protestation of devotion to a prince the terror of whose irresistible arms was matched only by the charms of his person and the benignity of his rule the holy scriptures he said command us to obey our sovereign and teach us that no pretext or reason can dispense us from his obedience and in a glowing eulogy on louis the fourteenth he went on to show that obedience to him was not only a duty but an inestimable privilege 
he dwelt with admiration on the recent victories in holland and held forth the hope that a speedy and glorious peace would leave his majesty free to turn his thoughts to the colony which already owed so much to his fostering care the true means pursued frontenac of gaining his favour and his support is for us to unite with one heart in labouring for the progress of canada then he addressed in turn the clergy the nobles the magistrates and the citizens he exhorted the priests to continue with zeal their labours for the conversion of the indians and to make them subjects not only of christ but also of the king in short to tame and civilize them a portion of their duties in which he plainly gave them to understand that they had not hitherto acquitted themselves to his satisfaction next he appealed to the nobles commended their gallantry and called upon them to be as assiduous in the culture and improvement of the colony as they were valiant in its defence the magistrates the merchants and the colonists in general were each addressed in an appropriate exhortation i can assure you messieurs he concluded that if you faithfully discharge your several duties each in his station his majesty will extend to us all the help and all the favour that we can desire it is needless then to urge you to act as i have counselled since it is for your own interest to do so as for me it only remains to protest before you that i shall esteem myself happy in consecrating all my efforts and if need be my life itself to extending the empire of jesus christ throughout all this land and the supremacy of our king over all the nations that dwell in it he administered the oath and the assembly dissolved he now applied himself to another work that of giving a municipal government to quebec after the model of some of the cities of france in place of the syndic an official supposed to represent the interests of the citizens he ordered the public election of three aldermen of whom the senior should act as a mayor one of the number was to go out of office every year his place being filled by a new election and the governor as representing the king reserved the right of confirmation or rejection he then in concert with the chief inhabitants proceeded to frame a body of regulations for the government of a town destined as he again and again declares to become the capital of a mighty empire and he farther ordained that the people should hold a meeting every six months to discuss questions involving the welfare of the colony the boldness of these measures will scarcely be appreciated at the present day the intendant talon declined on pretence of a slight illness to be present at the meeting of the estates he knew too well the temper of the king whose constant policy it was to destroy or paralyze every institution or custom that stood in the way of his autocracy the dispatches in which frontenac announced to his masters what he had done received in due time their answer the minister colbert wrote your assembling of the inhabitants to take the oath of fidelity and your division of them into three estates may have a good effect for the moment but it is well for you to observe that you are always to follow in the government of canada the forms in use here and since our kings have long regarded it as good for their service not to convoke the states-general of the kingdom in order perhaps to abolish insensibly this ancient usage you on your part should very rarely or to speak more correctly never give a corporate form to the inhabitants of canada you should even as the colony strengthens suppress gradually the office of the syndic who presents petitions in the name of the inhabitants for it is well that each should speak for himself and no one for all here in brief is the whole spirit of the french colonial rule in canada a government as i have elsewhere shown of excellent intentions but of arbitrary methods 
frontenac filled with the traditions of the past and sincerely desirous of the good of the colony rashly set himself against the prevailing current his municipal government and his meetings of citizens were like his three estates abolished by a word from the court which bold and obstinate as he was he dared not disobey had they been allowed to subsist there can be little doubt that great good would have resulted to canada frontenac has been called a mere soldier he was an excellent soldier and more besides he was a man of vigorous and cultivated mind penetrating observation and ample travel and experience his zeal for the colony however was often counteracted by the violence of his prejudices and by two other influences first he was a ruined man who meant to mend his fortunes and his wish that canada should prosper was joined with a determination to reap a goodly part of her prosperity for himself again he could not endure a rival opposition maddened him and when crossed or thwarted he forgot everything but his passion signs of storm quickly showed themselves between him and the intendant talon but the danger was averted by the departure of that official for france a cloud then rose in the direction of the clergy another thing displeases me writes frontenac and this is the complete dependence of the grand vicar and the seminary priests on the jesuits for they never do the least thing without their order so that they the jesuits are masters in spiritual matters which as you know is a powerful lever for moving everything else and he complains that they have spies in town and country that they abuse the confessional intermeddle in families set husbands against wives and parents against children and all as they say for the greater glory of god i call to mind every day monseigneur what you did me the honour to say to me when i took leave of you and every day i am satisfied more and more of the great importance to the king's service of opposing the slightest of the attempts which are daily made against his authority he goes on to denounce a certain sermon preached by a jesuit to the great scandal of loyal subjects wherein the father declared that the king had exceeded his powers in licensing the trade in brandy when the bishop had decided it to be a sin together with other remarks of a seditious nature i was tempted several times pursues frontenac to leave the church with my guards and interrupt the sermon but i contented myself with telling the grand vicar and the superior of the jesuits after it was over that i was very much surprised at what i had heard and demanded justice at their hands they greatly blamed the preacher and disavowed him attributing his language after their custom to an excess of zeal and making many apologies with which i pretended to be satisfied though i told them nevertheless that their excuses would not pass current with me another time and if the thing happened again i would put the preacher in a place where he would learn how to speak since then they have been a little more careful though not enough to prevent one from always seeing their intention to persuade the people that even in secular matters their authority ought to be respected above any other as there are many persons here who have no more brains than they need and who are attached to them by ties of interest or otherwise it is necessary to have an eye to these matters in this country more than anywhere else the churchmen on their part were not idle the bishop who was then in france contrived by some means to acquaint himself with the contents of the private dispatches sent by colbert in reply to the letters of frontenac he wrote to another ecclesiastic to communicate what he had learned at the same time enjoining great caution since while it is well to acquire all necessary information and to act upon it it is of the greatest importance to keep secret our possession of such knowledge 
the king and the minister in their instructions to frontenac had dwelt with great emphasis on the expediency of civilizing the indians teaching them the french language and amalgamating them with the colonists frontenac ignorant as yet of indian nature and unacquainted with the difficulties of the case entered into these views with great heartiness he exercised from the first an extraordinary influence over all the indians with whom he came in contact and he persuaded the most savage and refractory of them the iroquois to place eight of their children in his hands four of these were girls and four were boys he took two of the boys into his own household of which they must have proved most objectionable inmates and he supported the other two who were younger out of his own slender resources placed them in respectable french families and required them to go daily to school the girls were given to the charge of the ursulines frontenac continually urged the jesuits to co-operate with him in this work of civilization but the results of his urgency disappointed and exasperated him he complains that in the village of the hurons near quebec and under the control of the jesuits the french language was scarcely known in fact the fathers contented themselves with teaching their converts the doctrines and rites of the roman church while retaining the food dress and habits of their original barbarism in defence of the missionaries it should be said that when brought in contact with the french the indians usually caught the vices of civilization without its virtues but frontenac made no allowances the jesuits he writes will not civilize the indians because they wish to keep them in perpetual wardship they think more of beaver skins than of souls and their missions are pure mockeries at the same time he assures the minister that when he is obliged to correct them he does so with the utmost gentleness in spite of this somewhat doubtful urbanity it seems clear that a storm was brewing and it was fortunate for the peace of the canadian church that the attention of the truculent governor was drawn to other quarters End of chapters one and two